0: Well, in a way, we thank God for technology that allows us to fellowship with our brother in Christ, Tim. Halfway around the world, we're able to hear his voice and directly hear uh, the things that are encouraging his heart and his prayer request that we might intercede before the Lord. Tim and I, if you don't know, go way back. We've known each other for over 15 years. And from 15 years ago, there has always been this sincere, pure uh, commitment devotion to the Lord and is still with Him to this day, um, just thoroughly encouraged by what God is doing in His life and His family and through His family, through His ministry in the country of Ireland. We look forward to c- gathering gathering together this Friday night and meeting for prayer um, this Friday. We'll all be gathering together and um, calling upon the name of our Lord to pray and intercede and petition our God to send out workers into His harvest field so that many might uh, hear the name of Christ and and repent of their sins and be saved. I ask you personally to prepare your hearts this whole week and to come out this Friday night with your hearts ready, your minds willing and prepared to pray together with the church. Um, Well, thank you to Justine for your testimony. We're encouraged by our time yesterday and our interview time together, hearing your heart. And hearing your salvation testimony, Romans five three through five. That's the verse that God used to save me in 1988. And um, to hear that you're saved and encouraged by that passage as well was just a real thrill to my heart. Well, this past week, you know, last Sunday after church, uh, my wife and I gathered together at night and were talking about the message. And I share with you that I die a little bit with each sermon and. Last Sunday particularly, I died a little bit. It was such a <clears throat> painful message, a difficult subject on materialism. And Sir and I were talking about how it should impact our lives, impact our family, decisions that we need to make so that we are living, living a life honoring to the Lord. And as she was telling me about that story that I shared with you about my sandals, how I went to a store and how, you know, I used to be a very frugal guy, I bought a size, I bought, I bought a pair of sandals, size 9 and 10, because somebody mistakenly took the wrong size. And I haggled them down to $3, and, and Bob actually remembers those sandals. I wore those sandals for years. And someone was telling me, James, you missed the whole punchline of that story. I go, what do you mean? The funny part of that story is that you're a size 11. <laughs> I was like, that's right! That's- not only were they the wrong size, they weren't even my size. And I bought them and wore them for several years. So I couldn't let that pass without me sharing that. So, redeeming it this morning. Well, this whole week, I was um, somewhat limping a lot of that study about materialism. And realizing that this is the last Sunday for our missions month, I was hard pressed. I wanted to preach a message on evangelism and missions. And this past Wednesday Pastor Marcus invited me to come out to Irvine CCF and asked me to preach on Isaiah chapter 6. And um, I went to the students there and, and I went long last day I think and they had to cancel small group time cuz it went so long. Over an hour on Isaiah chapter 6. And I saw a direct parallel between Isaiah chapter 6 and Matthew 28. So I want to start by just reminding you of Isaiah's encounter with the glory of the Lord and his subsequent response. And with that foundation, we'll go into Matthew 28. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah enters the temple of God with a heart that is despondent. A heart that is lowly and broken. Because King Uzziah, a king that reigned for 52 years, and he was a good king over the uh, southern kingdom Judah. He did a great job of raising that nation, securing its borders, raising up a prosperous economy. He died that year. And because their king had died, the nation was somewhat uncertain concerning its future. Their enemies were growing in strength. Therefore, Isaiah enters that uh, temple with his heart broken. And he says in verse 1, In that year I entered the temple and I saw the Lord. And in verse 1, it's the word Adonai. It's not the Lord Yahweh. He says, I entered the temple and I saw the King. I saw the true Sovereign, the true authority. We had looked at King Uzziah, a human king, and hoped in him, trusted in him. But when I entered the temple of God, I saw the true king, the Adonai, who is Yahweh. And we see, and he describes the the grandeur, the majesty, authority displayed by Yahweh in the temple. He is seated on a throne, a kingly throne. He is high and exalted. And the train of his robe fills the temple of God. Isaiah continues and he says, that the glory of God was uh, manifested further by the angels, these seraphs. They were flying around the throne of God the King. These angels were flying with six wings. With two wings they were flying. With two wings and a sign of, sign of humility they were covering their feet. And with two wings they are covering their eyes. And we have to ask the question, why were they covering their eyes? Where they were covering their eyes because even these holy angels, angels who had never sinned against God, they were not able to look directly into the holiness, the glory, the purity of God. They covered their eyes. They could not look at God directly, but they cried out with their voices. And with most beautiful song, they cried out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. It was the most beautiful song. It was their declaration, their proclamation, that our God whom we serve is a thrice holy God, emphasizing His essential attribute, that above all other attributes of God, He is identified by this core attribute of holiness. It is emphasized by, re- by repeating it three times. Nowhere does the Bible say that God is love, 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 or nice, 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 or kind, kind, kind. But twice in the Scriptures, in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, it is declared that our God is a thrice holy God. That everything that emanates from God is holy. His presence is holy. Moses, take off your shoes because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Why is it holy? Because God is holy. We call the Bible a holy Bible. Why is it a holy Bible? Because these are His words and His words are holy because He is holy. His love is holy. His justice is holy. His sovereignty is holy. Everything that comes from God is holy because this is his essential attribute. Now, what does it mean that God is holy? It means 1 Samuel 2:2 that he is unique, that he is alone in all creation. There is none holy like the Lord, there is none beside thee. It means he is incomparable in his justice, in his righteousness in His purity, in His beauty. It means He is all alone in terms of His moral perfection. In the end, His language runs out. The language runs out. Isaiah continues to describe his experience and he says, At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. The ground began to shake. And the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah is a good Old Testament prophet. He understands the significance of earthquakes. He understands the significance of smoke. These are all signs of God's wrath, of God's anger and indignation. Second Samuel 22, 7-9 through The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because God was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it, so the earth shaking and smoke were all indicative of God's anger, of God coming into contact with sin, and God having a visceral, repulsive response to sin. And indignation, wrath being provoked by man's sins. And so here is where Isaiah experienced more than God's glory, more than God's majesty, sovereignty and holiness. Here, Isaiah experienced God's grace. Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe to me! I cried, I am ruined. Woe was a word of cursing and doom, a pronouncement of judgment. Isaiah says, I am damned. I am judged. I am coming undone. I cannot exist after this. I am ruined. He pronounces judgment upon Himself. Why? Because He understands the object of God's wrath. In Isaiah chapters 3, 4, and 5, Isaiah as a prophet declared woe to the nation of Judah. He said, woe to you. Over 11 times, woe to you. Because you're champions at sin. You're greedy, hoarding wealth because of your lack of justice, because of your lack of compassion, woe to you. Woe to you because you're proud of your sinfulness. God is angry at you. When he sees God's holiness, he says, woe to me. I am ruined. I am undone. Because God is holy and I am a sinner. And then in the next verse, in verse 5, he names the sin. He names the sin. Names his guilt. Names the reason for his sin. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Our biblical principle, Matthew 12:34, is that out of the overflow of the heart, your mouth speaks. So if you have a complaining mouth, complaining speech, If you judge others, if you gossip, if you have malicious speech, slander, if you judge others, if you denigrate others, if you're grumbling against God, all of of this is reflective of your heart, right? You know, like computers, garbage in, garbage out. If you have garbage in your heart, it is reflected, it is revealed by your speech. And Isaiah says, I know I have a sinful heart because of my speech. My speech reveals that the core of my being, the essential uh, instrument of my body that gives me life, that the control center of my heart, of my soul, my heart, reveals that I am a sinner, therefore I am undone. My heart is filthy, full of sin. At the core of my being, I am a sinner. When God sees me, He is not happy. When God sees me, He is angry. He is infuriated because of my sinfulness. That's the question about, think about this, apart from Christ, what do you think God's disposition is when He looks upon you? When He sees your heart, do you believe it's any better than Isaiah? Do you think God is happy when He looks at us apart from Christ? No, God is as just as angry, if not more, when He sees the sinfulness of our hearts. Well, Isaiah experienced God's grace, though. Verse 6 Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. That word atonement is a beautiful word. We need to one day do a word study on atonement. It means to wipe clean. It literally means to wash away. It's like taking a, it's a hot shower. And God is washing away all our sins where we are white as snow. Though our sins were red as crimson. It was deep, stained red. God atones for our sins and we're white as snow. We're pure. And that's what God says to Isaiah. Your sins have been wiped clean. A visual picture of salvation picture of a contrite, humble, broken soul crying out to God to be saved and a picture of our merciful God purging Him of many sins pointing to the cross of Christ and then in verse 8 the Lord says Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And the message is Whom shall I send? Do the hardest job in the world. Why is this the hardest job? The hardest job is To proclaim God's word to a prosperous people. That's why it's so hard. It's easy to go to a a, a nation that is having a difficult time. Economy is down. They're being attacked. There's famine in the land. People are desperate. To preach God's word there, it's somewhat easy. But But Judah at this time, they were prospering. They were righteous in their own eyes. They saw themselves as God's people, loved by God. Therefore, to preach God's word of woe wasn't the most hardest job. So God is saying, whom shall I send? That's why I told the CCF people. You guys are doing the most difficult job preaching the gospel in Irvine, right? It doesn't get much more difficult than that, right? To preach the gospel of God's wrath, of God's judgment, of the crucified Christ in you know, the, the most developed, organized city in the world, Irvine, where prosperity and comfort and righteousness reigns. Conservative Orange County. Well, God says, who, who shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah responded by saying, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. That sentence there is a response of Isaiah to God's glory. God's sovereignty, God's holiness, God's grace. Isaiah has only one response. God, I'm right here. Send me, use me. And there is a direct parallel to Matthew 28. Right? Turn with me to Matthew 28. A direct parallel to the great commission given to the disciples by Jesus Christ. Just like Isaiah in Matthew 28, King of Israel had been murdered, was crucified on the cross. Just like Isaiah, many disciples had not seen the Lord. So they were going to Galilee with a heart that was broken, despondent. And Matthew, he's accurate. He's not... You know, glossing over any truth. He's being accurate. He wants, he's detailed. He says, some doubted when they saw the Christ. Because they were so sad. They were so broken. That even when they saw the risen Lord, they were not convinced. Some even doubted. So they are going to Galilee with a heart that were broken. And now they're confronted with the glorified Lord. Our Lord revealed Himself with all His glory. eyes blazing like fire. All right, body is glorified. So they confront the Lord. Obviously, He is He's the one who is in authority. He is truly the King of Kings because He defeated sin and death. He conquered death on the cross. Obviously, He's a thrice holy God because He's risen from the grave. They 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 see for themselves the glory of the risen Lord, and then they also saw God's grace and mercy with every mark on the body of Christ, was a depiction of God's love. Although His body was glorified, He still had holes in His body. He still had the scars. He still had the marks that was put upon Him because of the thorn, uh, uh, crown of thorns placed on His head. So with every mark on Jesus' face, every scar on the body of Christ, they saw grace and mercy flow down from Calvary, given to them. And they understood that they were not recipients of God's forgiveness of sins for the death of the Lord. And so our Lord, in this context, gives to them His great commission. By them going to Galilee. Jerusalem is down in the middle part of Israel. Galilee is in the northern part. A distance separating somewhere like San Francisco and and Los Angeles. So they take a trek up to San Francisco... Right? That distance to meet the Lord. So by them going to Galilee, as directed by Christ, they're telling Christ, Here am I. Send me. Peter is there. John is there. Jude, Bartholomew, Andrew. All these men are there. And by their presence, they're saying to the Lord, I'm here. Use me, Lord. Send me. Send me for your purposes. And here we find... In Matthew 28, our Lord's great commission given to the disciples and given to all Christians throughout church history until the end of time. And so as Christians today, we are under that same commission, same directive, same order. These are the last commands of Jesus Christ to the church. Therefore, These are commands given to us directly. It is a passage that we must understand. I plead with all believers. That is a passage that we must understand. Deep down in my heart, I wish that every person in our church fellowship could hear, understand, and submit to these uh, truths, to this commission. If a Christian understands the whole Bible... And yet they neglect. They misunderstand. Or they ignore Matthew 28, 19 and 20. They missed the point. Right. I mean, they missed the point of like we study the Gospel of John, and at the end you don't understand the Great Commission. You misunderstood. You missed the point of the whole Gospel of John. Our four and a half years studying the Gospel of John was, in a sense, all for naught. All in vain. All for nothing you don't submit to the point of the Gospel of John, point of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, point of the whole of Scripture, Old and New Testament. It is for Christians to go out and proclaim the Gospel of Christ to all the nations. This is, suffice to say, this is the supreme mission of the church. Supreme mission. This is why we're here. This is why Christ loved us. This is why Christ sent the Holy Spirit to care for us, so that we would be great commissioned Christians. MacArthur said this, and it's worth repeating, that everything we do here can be done better in heaven. If it's fellowship, we should just all go to heaven, because in heaven we'll have perfect fellowship. If it's praise and worship... Praise was good today, Pastor Marcus, but we can do a lot better led by the angels in heaven. We should all just go to heaven now. Right? If it's knowledge of scripture, theology, and doctrine, we will see clearly. As a man sees a, a man's friend, we don't look dimly through a poor mirror, we'll see clearly in heaven, and we'll have better best understanding in heaven. Only thing we can do on earth that we can't do in heaven is evangelism is missions, is ministry of edification. That is why Paul said in Philippians 4, 21 through 24, he said, I am torn between these two options. I'm torn between departing this earthly life and to be with Christ, which is better by far, and staying on earth, continuing in my ministry, in the church, and advancing to the world. I am torn. What shall I choose Paul says, it is better that I remain because of the great commission evangelizing to the lost. 2 Timothy 2.10 in his last letter, in his last words, he, he tells us why he endured everything. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul said, I endured everything. I persevered. Why? Why am I hanging on? It's because of the elect that they might hear the gospel and be saved. Therefore, if you're a Christian who wants to glorify God, if you're a Christian who wants to make your life count, you want to be used for the Lord, useful to the Lord, if you're a Christian like Isaiah and you have a heart saying, here am I, send me. Here am I, Lord, use me then you must be committed to evangelism. You must be committed to missions. The Great Commission must be your daily lifestyle, part of your daily living. Conversely, if your heart is not burning for the lost, if you're not in prayer daily praying for the lost, that they might be saved. If you're not weeping today because the world is lost and headed for a godless eternity, if your life is involved, you're in a thick of thin things, you live in a shallow existence, you know, being mired by trivialities, then you miss missed the point of the Christian life. The church throughout the world is charging the enemy lines, living and dying for the gospel, and you are focused on trivialities, focused on the wrong things. That's why, One of the purposes of our interviewing our missionaries is to hear with their own voices. Hear them on the front lines. Living and dying for the Great Commission. So that it would remind us to be focused on the right things. Well, let's go to the text. Let's look at the Great Commission. Look at verse 19. Christ Christ says, Therefore go and make disciples. Now, a key word there is Therefore telling us that our evangelism, our making disciples, baptizing believers and teaching believers, they are all based upon this pre-established truth that Christ reigns, that Christ is King of all kings, Lord of all lords, that He is the sovereign ruler of all creation. Christ said that He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth given by God to Christ, perfect tense, once for all, given to Christ, never to be taken, up, taken back again. Christ has exousia in the Greek. He has supreme power, but also the legitimate authority. Right? Some people have power, but not the legal right. Christ has both. He has the power, and He has the legal right over all creation, and that is the basis for our evangelism, for our work in missions. Our, our work is prompted by the knowledge that Jesus is sovereign, that the destiny of all men are in the hands of Christ, that He is the Lord of the harvest. We're not going out there and rolling the dice and hope this thing works out. You know, hope my life is not in vain. Hope I don't give my life in this ministry thing, evangelism, and at the end it was all for vain, all for naught. That is not our motivation as we go into God's work. We run into God's work knowing that God is sovereign, that Jesus is in complete control, and He has solemnly ordained these things to be. He will establish His church, His work will be done in and through us, and with that knowledge, He gives us this charge, verse 18, Therefore go, and make disciples of all nations. Now this is where, maybe our basic knowledge of the Greek is helpful, through our uh, understanding of the Greek tenses, uh, mood and voice, we understand that the main verb of the sentence, is in the make disciples, go is a participle, a correlating participle that goes with baptizing and, ba- and teaching. The main verb, the main command, the main imperative is make disciples. Our Lord tells us, make disciples. This is not just a responsibility of the church, but a responsibility of every Christian. Every Christian. He's not talking to pastors here, he's not talking to elders. He's not talking to seminarians. He's not talking to mature Christians. He says to His disciples, a singular command, make disciples. So Christ has commanded me to make disciples and that's my life's commission. What is your life's commission? Same thing. Make disciples. Have you thought about that? Have you considered that, that? That is your life's purpose in the world? And know what Christ did not say. He did not say make believers. Go around and convince people. Right? Give them evidences. Right? Give them logical, philosophical arguments so that they would believe in me. Right? Or make church attenders. Or make Christian nations. right? Make America into a Christian nation. Right? Go to Iraq and make it a Christian nation. Or go to China and so forth. That's not what Christ said. Christ said... Make mathetes, Greek word, disciples. The idea is apprentice, right? You get that understanding now, the TV show, right, with Donald, and, you know, who wants to be Donald's apprentice? Someone who will follow him, have this privileged position of being in his presence, to learn from him, and extend Donald's kingdom throughout the world, right? Well, that's what Christ is saying. Well, forget that, you know, Donald's kingdom, expand Christ's kingdom. And it's not an earthly kingdom, not a physical kingdom, but in the hearts of man. Teach them the gospel. Proclaim God's truth. The power of God that saves. Expand God's kingdom in the hearts of people throughout the world. Christ was telling them, and He's telling us, to raise men and women of God who will know the truth of God and follow Christ lovingly and faithfully. Disciples who will obey Christ, John eight thirty one. Disciples who will cherish Christ above all human relationships. That is what a disciple is, right? Someone who loves Christ more than mom or dad, more than husband or wife, more than children, more than friends. That is what a disciple of Christ is. Where I love Christ more than I love my wife, more than my children my wife as well, and everyone here. We love one another. We strive to be good sons and daughters, good husbands, good wives. But like what Justin was saying, our first relationship is with God. And that's who we want to raise. Men and women who will love God more than life itself. Luke 9, 27, who will carry His cross, deny Himself and follow after Him who would be willing to lose his life for the sake of Christ, Luke 9, 24 and 25. A man or woman who will not be ashamed, will not be ashamed, will not consider it an embarrassing thing to be aligned with Christ. In fact, it would be His honor, His prize, His privilege to be aligned with Christ. That is a disciple. That is our mission. Each and every one of us, we are called to make the disciples personally in our lives. One important qualifier is to make disciples of all nations. The, the Greek word is ethnos, ethnicities, ethnic groups. That we must not be, uh, have tunnel vision and focus on any, any group of people at, at ethnicity wise. That we owe the gospel to every single person. We can't. We must not target anybody, right? We're open. We preach the gospel to everyone because God's desire, First Peter two nine, is that all men might be saved. That's the main command. And here are the three participles. The first participle is simple. Go, right? Go as you are going. We must go. Right? We must go. I remember evangelizing many years ago, and I was talking to this guy, and he was just, he was talking to me, but he was offended. He was not cooperating with me. I'm trying to share the gospel, and he's not helping me out here. And he's like, Why are you guys out here? You know, bothering us. He was at a park. Why are you coming into my space, you know, to tell me about this news? Why don't you guys just wait for people to come to you? And I said, Because you guys never come. Said, you guys don't come to us. So we have to go to you. And he said, you know, that's true. And that is true. Ever since Adam and, when, when Adam and Eve were, before fall, they sought after God. They had fellowship with God. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They ran away. They hid from God. They hid from God. That's why Romans 3 says, no man seeks after God. In fact, all men... Because of the shame of their sins, they're humiliated, they feel guilty, they feel embarrassed. They run from God. Therefore, God went after them. Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? Cain, where are you? What happened to your brother Abel? Well, same thing today. If we just establish a church open the doors and put a sign out, you know, open on Sundays and wait for the people to come to us, not only is it unbiblical, it, it, is, it, is, it doesn't work. It is, it is not effectual. Because the world is hiding from God. They don't want to come to God. Therefore, Christ says, you must go. We must leave our comfort zones and go to them. Go and be in their faces and pray for them, share the gospel, and, and make them feel uncomfortable, and break through social norms, for the sake of the gospel. Whether it means crossing the street, you know, crossing the cubicle, right? crossing the table, or maybe crossing borders, we must go to them, teaching them the gospel, and if they trust in Christ, baptize them, publicly baptize them, a private conversion is not acceptable. A private conversion where it's only between a private relationship between God and the person is not acceptable. Where they would publicly declare their faith in Christ. And they understood baptism with Christ would mean being unsynagogued by the synagogue, right? being cast out of the synagogue. They will be kicked out of their family, kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of their social community where they could not do business any longer. They could not buy kosher foods anymore. They would have to intermingle with the Gentiles. They understood what it meant to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But that was a message. No compromise. You must align yourself 100% privately and publicly with Christ. And Christ told them, last participle, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commanded. So it's not, we're not just interested in conversion. We're interested in the whole man becoming mature to the fullness of Christ. Our concern as, as elders and pastors of Cornerstone is not just for you to become Christians and, and just follow be believers our concern is for you to be fully mature, complete in every way, to submit to the whole counsel of God, where every area of your life is submitted to the teachings of the Scripture. That's why we teach on finances. We teach our husbands and wives. We teach on parenting. We teach on how to be a good worker. We teach on relationship between man and a woman if they're dating or they're single. We teach on all these different doctrines because that's what Christ wants. Mature believers who will reflect God's beauty and glory in the most complete way to this world. Teach them everything. This tells us, some churches say, oh, there are important doctrines and unimportant doctrines. There are significant or insignificant doctrines. That's absurd. It's all important. Every word, every command, every instruction given by Christ is important. If it wasn't important, He he would not have given it to us. Our, Our responsibility is to pass that truth down to our disciples. And here is Christ's promise. Verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Two words are emphasized in the Greek, surely means behold remember pay close attention and I the pronoun I I am with you always to the very end of the age wherever we go whatever we do Christ promises us he will never leave us he will never forsake us he will be at our side helping us to do his work Three closing thoughts for us. Isaiah's commission was very difficult. Isaiah's commission was this, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Isaiah, go tell the people in Judah that they will hear everything but they'll never understand what you're saying. Tell them, be ever seeing but never perceiving that they will see And they will try to understand, but they they will never perceive or understand the Word of God. Go tell them that. Verse 10, Make the heart of the people calloused. More you preach the Word, Isaiah, their hearts, instead of melting like butter before the noonday sun, their hearts will harden like clay. So more, every time he preaches the Word, the hearts will get harder and harder, just like Pharaoh. With every miracle that Pharaoh saw, I mean, if we saw those miracles, we would have been broken, repentant, humble to our knees, repenting before God. But Pharaoh, every time God performed the miracle, his heart was hardened. So God hardened his heart. Same thing. Now Judah has become Pharaoh. Make their hearts callous with the preaching of the Word. Their hearts will become harder and harder. Their ears, make their ears dull with the preaching of the Word. Their ears become more and more closed. Make and close their eyes... They'll become more and more blind. Isaiah says, Lord, how long do I have to do this? That's a difficult commission. That's a very frustrating ministry. How long, O Lord? God said, Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. I have judged the nation of Judah. They'll be taken away captive, the nation of Babylon. Their sacrificial system will be destroyed. Because they have forsaken Yahweh. That is exactly what happened. Isaiah says it was uh, God's wrath, judgment is coming. Jeremiah, God's wrath is imminent, judgment has come. Ezekiel, we're in exile. God's wrath, his pronouncement of judgment, has occurred already. And Daniel sees the future promise of Israel in the future. There was no hope for the nation of Israel. That was Isaiah's commission. What a difficult task but not for Christians, not for us. Christ promised that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That if we go out in the harvest field, we will find that there are many people who are sovereignly prepared to hear the Word of God who long to be saved. He promised us that. He promised that the church will stand firm and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And Christ promised that the gospel is powerful, able to save the lost, the Jew first, and also the Greek. He promised when we preach the gospel that people will be saved and that we can enjoy serving Christ. We can experience the joy of being used by God and seeing people come to the faith. What a different commission that God has for us. Revealing to us that it is a joy to participate in the Great Commission, not a burden. Secondly, reminds us that that the that the motivation we have to make disciples is in response to the glory of our Lord, in response to his sovereignty as the risen Savior. He's not still on the cross. Our Lord is not in a grave, he did not see decay. Our Lord right now is alive. He's sitting at the right hand of God's throne. He's watching us. He is with us. And in light of His glory, His sovereignty, in light of His grace and mercy given to us, as we see the body of Christ, we see His scars, we see the marks on His body, we see the marks on His head, because we know that grace, we know that mercy, and in response to God's glory and grace, Our motivation is to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. And third and final thought is this. I know that many of you are praying about missions, talking about missions, thinking about missions. And elders have been really encouraged by how many of you have articulated to us a desire to serve overseas. And some have asked, actually when I went to AACF at UCLA a few months ago, I gave a mission sermon, and one guy came up to me and said, Pastor James, how do I know if I'm ready to go to missions? How do I know if I'm called to uh, proclaim his gospel overseas? And I told him, Jeremiah 12.5, If you have raced with men on foot, and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan, right? So if you can't play ball and keep up with the guys on Sunday with cornerstone guys, what are you thinking trying to try out for of the NBA, right? If you can't race with men, what are you doing trying to race horses? Christ said in Acts one eight. You shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of this earth. I told them, you're ready for missions if you've risen above your Christian life in your own life. If you're a Christian at home, right, before your parents, before your siblings, you're conducting yourself in a manner worthy and they see a powerful Christian testimony. If your co-workers If your friends, if your mailman, your plumber, your sphere of influence, you're faithful to the gospel in Jerusalem, then you should think about Judea. And if you're faithful in Judea, then Samaria. After you proclaim the gospel in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. You want to be a missionary? You want to go overseas? Then be faithful in your own life to the non-believers that are in your life right now, are you witnessing to them? Are you praying for them? Are you earnestly going right now to share the gospel with them? You are getting ahead of yourself thinking about Czech Republic or Kazakhstan or or, 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 or Ireland if you're not doing it here. But if you are doing it at home, if you are faithful, if you are living the Christian life and you're impacting souls with the gospel... And the Holy Spirit is confirming that God will give more to you and enlarge your scope of ministry or maybe one day it will reach the ends of the earth. Let's pray. You know, we rarely do this, but I'd like to give you each... Just a few moments to respond to the Word of God personally, knowing that this mandate, this great commission was given to individual Christians, not to leaders, not the church in general, but to individual believers. That you stand before the Lord individually, how will you respond? What is your response to the Lord this day? and gracious Father we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit for we are so weak we are so carnal worldly and shallow we are so petty in our in our lives in our perspective in our mindset we are so selfish Lord Lord with the help of the Holy Spirit open our eyes to be reminded and to see the glory of the risen Lord that He is alive today that He is sitting at the right hand of the glory, He is watching us, that He is with us now. Lord, help us to be reminded and to see the grace that was poured out to us on Calvary, that though with our own voices we mocked You, we scoffed, we shook our fists, and we said, crucify Him, crucify Him. That was confirmed by our own sinfulness. Lord, You you are merciful and gracious and You saved us. Lord, in light of these truths, may each of us respond by saying, Lord, here am I, send me. Lord, make my life count. Lord, help me to live my life as a Christian, to proclaim your truth in my Jerusalem first, in my home first, among my friends, my spirits of influence, and that you would use me as you see fit to reach people in the four corners of this world. Oh God, may we truly be um, great commissioned believers and exhort ourselves, uh, beat and buffet our bodies, run this race of perseverance to, to fulfill the task you have given to us, the task of the great commission, proclaiming your truth until your return. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in that.